Luke 10, 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put, the, he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who shows him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In order for us to really understand this story, which has become um, so common, so, um, I don't know, familiar to us that, that we just kind of usually gloss over it. In fact, we even have laws on the books in our country called what? The Good Samaritan Laws. Because we recognize out of our culture that kind of came out of Western Christianity and within the United States mostly, that there's this need for us to take care of one another, to treat each other as neighbors. And so this, this idea, this, this concept of the Good Samaritan is so familiar to us. I want to go back, way back into Israel's history and talk a little bit about the setup to this story that Jesus gives in his answer to this young lawyer who comes asking this question of Jesus. So let's go back uh, almost actually a thousand years because what we know is that the kingdom of Israel came together under first the king Saul. And Saul, though being from one of the southern kingdoms, um, ruled over actually all 12 tribes of Israel, including in that the half tribes underneath um, the, the Joseph line, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so these tribes were all united together in kind of a loose um, affiliation with one another. Each tribe had its own kind of governance and own kind of judge system within their tribes. And they had usually their own territories and kind of capitals of those territories and whatnot. But under King Saul, the entire nation, the entire people of Israel were unified together under one monarchy. But Saul, we know, did not really follow after the Lord in the way that God wanted Saul to be a king. And, and Saul seemed even kind of reluctant a little bit to take on this kingship. He never even refers to himself as the king of Israel. And so God replaces Saul. Um, God comes up with his own kind of inheritance or kind of passing down system for the royal people of his nation. And he picks the next king rather than it just being a son of Saul or someone in the descendancy of Saul. And so what he does is he goes to a family of shepherds and he picks out the youngest, scrawniest, but ruddy and strong and faithful 
um, young boy to be the next king. And David actually serves as kind of Saul's right-hand man for a very long time under Saul's kingdom until Saul becomes jealous of David, being the next anointed of God, and Saul begins to persecute David. David runs off into the hills, and he's regularly running. So this is all really going on in the southern part of the 12 tribes. So the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and these tribes that kind of took over the southern Judean hills of the promised land that God had given to them. So David assumes the throne and he further unites the 12 tribes together by conquering all the lands around the 12 tribes and providing for them a area and geography of security and safety protected by his reign and his monarchy. See, now David's monarchy was not just consistent throughout his entire life. He had many different challenges to his throne, including his own children at different points who tried to usurp the kingdom. And even some of them succeeded and David had to go on the run at various times. But in general, when David died, he left a strong, very united and very defined nation of the people of God, the people of Israel. And so when his son Solomon assumed the throne and took over, he had this big unified land. And Solomon, through fortifying military cities and and putting up safety nets for people in all the different regions, even grew the kingdom more and grew the wealth of the kingdom more. And so they were completely unified through all of Solomon's life. But when Solomon died, the the beginnings of division began to pop up within the people of Israel. And if we ever wonder why in the world Christianity has so many different denominations, well, we can just look not too far than the story of Israel post Solomon's reign. Um, sometime in the 9th, 8th, 6th, 7th century, we began to see that the people of God themselves actually divide culturally over those who grew up in the north and those who grew up in the south. So the couple of tribes, two, three tribes that were in the south bonded together and became the kind of nation of Judah or the territories of Judah under the lineage of David's line of kingship. And then the tribes that were more north up in the um, Galilee region and along what we now call the West Bank all the way over to the Mediterranean, that whole region north became a unified nation under a different set of kings. And they began to be very divided from one another. And they had really very little dealings with one another. And in order for the kings of the north to gain their legitimacy as the rulers of God's people, they created for themselves different religious sites and cities that were based on the stories of the founding fathers of Judaism, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so there was these significant places of worship and that near, nearby cities would pop up and they would become sacred. And eventually they would build for themselves their own temple on a different mountain than the mountain of Jerusalem where the temple of the Judean kingdom was and where the temple of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon was. And they build for themselves their own temple and justify it saying that this is really the mountain where Abraham was and where Abraham sacrificed Isaac and all these other legends and stuff. And so they began to pick for themselves their own space to worship. And they built a temple. And they had their own lineage of priests and they worshiped there and they did sacrifices. And so the Judean people who saw Jerusalem as the true place of inheritance and the true place of worship where God's presence was began to resent the people of the north because the people of the north 
were not coming and worshiping in the place that they believed was the long-standing location of God's presence for the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And so this divide grew stronger and stronger. And the people of the north began to worship other gods. And, and the people in the south stayed a little bit, just a little bit more faithful to the covenant and the relationship with the God of Israel than the people of the north. They didn't build as many temples and shrines to other gods, although they did eventually do some of those things. But there was times of reforms where kings came in and it looked like there was some promise of renewal in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, that didn't really happen as much. And so the northern kingdom was kind of looked at as anathema by the southern kingdom, that they had separated themselves. Not only had they rebelled against God's lineage of kingship in David, but they also rebelled against the place of worship of that one God, and they have isolated themselves up there to the north. And so there's this huge divide happening between these people. And then in the 8th century, uh, the nearby eastern nation of Assyria came into the northern kingdom and basically sacked most of their major cities, carried off all their people and brought them into exile into Assyria, moved them into other lands that Assyria controlled so that they could not really know the territory and be able to rise up in rebellion against the Assyrian people. And then they moved other people into the region that was the northern kingdoms of Israel. Eventually over time those kingdoms in the north would come back but before that Babylon would actually sweep through after Assyria and even though Assyria had attacked down into Judah they hadn't destroyed Judah completely but Babylon taking over the kingdom of Assyria came in and they finished the job and completely wiped out the people of Jerusalem, sacked uh, the, the temple and the city and they carried all the people away in the Babylonian exile. So both the northern and the southern kingdom were brought into exile. Now, the people of the northern kingdom were in exile with the Assyrians for longer than the people in the southern kingdom. And there's this almost this concept, this idea of, an, of a national ethnic cleanliness almost that was there within the kingdom of the southern Jewish tribes where they saw the Assyrians as having been kind of interbred with those Assyrians and they weren't quite as pure as us. Now, the reality was that the Judeans also interbred with the captors that they had with the Babylonians. And so they were just as mixed in ethnic background and history and nationality as the, the northern kingdoms. But this, this kind of rivalry between them continued to grow because of these cultural differences. Now along comes the Greek Empire in the 4th century, the middle of the 4th century. Alexander the Great takes over the entire Mediterranean world and expands the Greek Empire far into the east, all the way to India, right? We know all this history. And so when he does this, he takes over the Holy Land. He takes over the Assyrian nation. And so he takes his own commander and he places him over that whole area. And so there's an, kind of a sub-country, a sub-nation or sub-rulership of Greek rule that is known as the Seleucid dynasty. And the Seleucid dynasty began to rule this region, this area, and they began to bring exiles back, and there was already some exiles that came back under Cyrus uh, in, in Nebuchadnezzar, um, that they had come back into Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, but the Seleucids moved more people back and allowed for there to be more free. So these two groups of people, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, moved back into their original territories and continued their rivalry that they had. The Samaritans rebuilt their temple in the north, the Judeans rebuilt their temple in the south, and they continued to grow in anger and hatred towards each other, practicing essentially very similar religions, but different locations that they worshiped from. 
So we see this rivalry really popping up where the Judeans really look down upon the Samaritans. And we all know from lots of teachings we've heard that when Jesus stops at Jacob's well in Samaria and sends the disciples into the nearby city to get food, and then he undergoes a conversation with a woman, which would have been unclean for a rabbi to do in and of itself, but with a Samaritan woman on top of that, that Jesus is kind of breaking all these taboos of their culture. And so Jesus has a different conception of that divide between the North and the South than the people of the North and the South themselves. Now, consider this. Jesus himself has roots in both the North and the South, right? Because Jesus came from along kind of the border of Samaria with, with the area that Judea overtook in the north, which is Galilee. And he also spent time in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. In fact, he was born in Bethlehem, right? So he has these roots in kind of the north and the south. And so it's no wonder that Jesus would see a need for reunification and unity among these people in, a, in an understanding that this, these dividing walls are not the things that should be the most important to the people who live in these lands. So all of that as backdrop, and we come to this story. Jesus is teaching. He's, he's sharing with the people who are there and in front of him in his ministry. And a, at the end of one of his things that he's saying, a lawyer stands up and a lawyer asks him a question. And you can at first begin to think that maybe this lawyer's question is a genuine one. He's really in, interested in how Jesus is interpreting the law and the prophets. And he really wants to know from Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, to inherit life with Yahweh, life with the God of Israel. So he asks this question, but Jesus in this story, unlike we see in Matthew and Mark where he's asked a similar question, Jesus doesn't give him the answer. Instead, Jesus challenges him and asks him, what, what do you say? What does the law say according to you? And the man answers that it is that all the law and the prophets are summed up in this one command, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength, right? So he answers back with the golden rule as we know it. Jesus says, good, do that and you will inherit eternal life. But remember, we kind of get to see now that this lawyer is not actually just having some kind of a good and honest curiosity that he wants to know Jesus' statement. Instead, he is trying to trip Jesus up. He's trying to ask a question that he doesn't think Jesus could really answer or that Jesus might answer in a way that will let him criticize Jesus' thinking and gain kind of points in favor for the religious system of the day and kind of detract from what Jesus has been going around and rabble-rousing with the common folks. And so he continues on in his questioning and he says, but wait a minute, wait a minute, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Well, now this is a really silly question because he knew the answer to his own question for the first one. It's proven, right? Because Jesus asks him the question back and he just gives his answer right away. And then he has a follow-up question already figured out. Do you think this man doesn't know in his mind who he's thinking of who his neighbor is? No, he knows exactly in his mind who he thinks his neighbor is. And in his mind, his neighbor is his fellow Jewish people. Those who are around him, he identified this in such a narrow way that he began to see his neighbor as only the people of the southern kingdom of Judah are his neighbor. And those are the people that he is to obey this commandment to. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that's what's in the heart of this young lawyer. And so he tells a story for his response. And he allows for this story 
to speak truth that probably just answering with kind of didactic teaching wouldn't have done. He shares with this man a story that pulls on this man's heartstrings. And the story is of a guy who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything about this guy. Doesn't say his profession, doesn't say his name, doesn't say his nationality. But what is probably the lawyer assuming if this guy is going from Jerusalem to Jericho? He's probably assuming that this is a Jew. This is a Jewish person who is on his way from business from Jerusalem off to Jericho or maybe even works in the temple in some way or around temple structure and he's heading back to his home where his family lives in Jericho. But on his way, as he's traveling this well-known road, he's beset by robbers and they rob him of everything that he owns and they leave him badly beaten on the side of the road. Now, if this would have happened in those days and you didn't get help, it was likely that you'd develop some type of infection from your wounds or maybe if you had a head wound, you might just die from exposure unconscious there in the desert. Whatever's going on, it's he's in a very dangerous situation being left there on the side of the road. And Jesus begins to subvert the expectations of this lawyer at this point in the story. Because remember, what's probably in the heart of this lawyer is that his neighbor is who? The other Jewish people who live around him. But here in this story, Jesus gives this vagary of a man who's going that you can assume as the audience there, they would think it was a Jew traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's now been beaten badly. And the first person to come upon him, the first person to see him in this condition is a priest. One of the Jewish leadership of the religious system who serves in the temple and he had just finished doing whatever he was doing in the temple and he was heading back home like I just said about the other man. He's heading back home and going to Jericho and he sees this man bleeding on the side of the road. He sees his desperation. He sees how much help he needs. And what does he do? Well, I think a lot of us could probably sympathize because I know in my life I've done similar things. He crosses the street and goes on the other side, right? So that he can avoid this man and his problems altogether. And maybe he did it out of some sense of ritual purification. He was just coming from the temple. He was purified. He may be going back to serve in a synagogue at home or in a community at home. And he doesn't want to place himself in a situation where he has to go through ritual cleansing and time that, that he wasn't planning on. So maybe he has all kinds of justifications in his heart as to why he can't help this man right now, but he passes by. We don't know. And of course, this is a made up story by Jesus, right? It's not telling a real story. And so he's really subverting the idea of this lawyer who asked a question because the question was, who is my neighbor? And here's this person who the lawyer would think, of course, he's one of the religious leaders. This is one of the guys who should be the neighbor to the guy broken and on, on the side of the road who's a fellow Jew. So, of course, he should be the one who helps him. But Jesus says he doesn't help him. He continues on. And then the next person comes along, a Levite. So somebody who's not a part of the priestly class of ruling in the temple and serving in the temple, but of the tribe that the priests come from. And so somebody who assists the priests. So kind of the next level down, the associate pastors, if you will, of the people of Israel. And this guy comes along and he sees the, this broken, beaten man on the side of the road. And what does he do? The same exact thing as the priest. 
he goes around. So yet there's a second chance that Jesus is providing for an example of the answer that the lawyer really wants from Jesus. The answer the lawyer has in his mind, that the Jew would help the Jew. And yet here in this story, the Levite doesn't help. Now remember that this is not a story that's meant to talk about how bad the Jewish people were. That's not what Jesus is doing here at all. Jesus is deeply subverting the, up, the expectations, assumptions of this lawyer in order for Jesus to make a deeper point about who your neighbor is. And so he all of a sudden brings in a new character to the story. And a character that at the mention of him, many in the room, in the area, probably would have shook their head in disgust and been like, oh, I can't believe you would include a Samaritan in this story. And they would all immediately begin thinking, oh, this Samaritan's probably going to kick the guy. Like, not only walk by, but he's probably going to kick him. And instead, Jesus completely subverts their expectations. And the Samaritan is the one who sees the man in deep need, and he stops and he helps this man. And then Jesus ends the story with saying that this man, the Samaritan, not only stops and helps the guy, bandages his wound, uses some of his wine as an antiseptic and wipes off his wounds and uses oil, precious oil that he has to put over the wounds as kind of a salve, a protectant to keep those wounds from festering or getting anything in them. And then he doesn't stop there. He takes the man and he places him on his own beast of burden, the animal that he could have ridden the rest of his journey. And he walks as far as he has to walk to the next town with this man on his donkey. So this guy has gone above and beyond. He didn't just stop and help the guy. If he had stopped at this point in the story, if he had just stopped and bandaged this guy up, he would have already have been the hero of the story in comparison to the two previous men who came upon this person in need. But he goes further. He puts the man on his donkey and he walks him to the next town. He brings him into kind of the local inn and he bandages his wounds some more, changes his bandages. He sits there. He cares for them over the period of the night as he's sleeping where he could be getting rest for his journey the next day that he has to go on. Instead, he's caring for this broken man that he found on the side of the road that he doesn't know. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes even further. And the next day, as he has to go on about his business, he doesn't just leave the man figuring, well, I've done enough for him. I've put him in a good position and he's on his own at this point. No, he has the means and he has the time. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to make sure that this man's needs are taken care of by the innkeeper. And he pays for all the costs that might come to the innkeeper for caring for this man until he could return and help him get back on his feet more. So the Samaritan goes far above and beyond what is needed for him to do in the law. And he shows great pity and compassion on this broken man on the side of the road so that he might receive wholeness and healing and protection in his vulnerability. Jesus responds back to the lawyer and says, who in that story was this man's neighbor? Now this guy is trapped as a lawyer. He is trapped he has to answer the Samaritan. But Jewish people don't want to admit that the Samaritans might be good. 
And so he doesn't even an answer with the idea that it was the Samaritan, but he betrays his own answer because he says the one who took pity on him was his neighbor. The one who compassionately cared for him was the one who is neighbor. And so it not only highlights that the Samaritan is the neighbor, the one who acted more neighborly towards this man, but is also the one he defines for us what being a neighbor is. And that is having compassion, empathy, pity on those around us and seeking to serve selflessly those who are in dire situations around us. So in Jesus's story, he in one fell swoop, he completely undermines the expectations of the people who are listening, the lawyer who's asking the question, and then he sets up a new expectation of what the law about being a good neighbor is. It's not about figuring out who your neighbor is and helping them. It's about you being the good neighbor to whoever you might come in contact with. Think about the generosity showed by the Samaritan and how far he went to make sure that this man was cared for in his most broken time and had everything he needed to get back on his feet and be healed. The incredible generosity of this man reflects the kind of generosity that God does towards us in the very person of Jesus who's telling this story, right? We are the person in the broken position and God sends for us this unexpected man that is actually God as a human so that he might bandage us up and take care of us and give us new life and new hope that we didn't have before him. So Jesus is highlighting the call to all those who receive and know his grace that we are to act like he acts. And if we are to be members of the new kingdom and follow the new covenant law, then we are to be neighbors to everyone around us, regardless of our predispositions, our prejudices, our divisions. We are to be neighbors to those who are around us in need. And we are to go above and beyond and care for them with as much as we can possibly afford to bring them to wholeness and to healing. This is what it means to be a neighbor, not just to our fellow Christians, but to those who live around us and those who are in our community who are most vulnerable, that we would care for them, love them, and show them great generosity of selflessness and how we give and love all of those around us. Well, friends, unless you brought umbrellas, I'm assuming we're going to have a light um, fellowship time, <laughs> people staying after. And that's okay because we are still one in the Holy Spirit. We're still connected. Keep calling one another. Keep encouraging one another. I know that it is getting difficult as we continue to move through this pandemic and as the uncertainty continues to increase, it seems like, not decrease. I know there's a lot of anxiety, but continue to love one another, reach out to one another, support one another in these times. I know you guys are amazing at that already, so keep doing it. Uh, show up on Wednesday night and give us a little shout to how you're doing, and, uh, and we would love to be able to hear from you and, and whatnot. Feel free to give me a phone call or to give me an email if you want to spend some time on the phone together, uh, and I will give you a call as soon as I get a chance. So let us come now. Let us leave worship together, not in a spirit of division, but in a spirit of unity in the gratitude that we have from God, from all that God has done for us, and that we would show God how much we love God and how much we uh, obey God because of all that he's done for us and how we are generous with our love and our selfishness, selflessness 
to all those who are around us. So let the God of selflessness give his spirit to you that you might be empowered to be his hands and his feet to those who are broken and by the side of the road and need your bandaging, your words of encouragement, your wine, your um, oil to salve them, that you might be the person that provides what God is giving to the broken world in his name. Amen.